is so wrong. Is it? Who speaks for Cynthia, Doctor, if we won't? It's done. Let it go. You have a choice. You can let it go. I did it for us. Natalie? Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. Welcome back to us, because it's time to get back on our bullshit. Just like Skanky. <laughs> uh, it has been a long, long, month? long, I'm not done, month. And I am I am happy to be back with Nick and Skanky. I'm happy to be back to a simpler time. A, a less complicated time. A less plotically dense. Plotically, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, In the Flesh is great. And if you haven't listened to our In the Flesh series, the 2023 Pride series, highly recommend you go check it out. Even if you just watch the show, just go watch the show. The show's fucking amazing. But I have to say, I really did miss the um the simplicity of what Forever Night was trying to say. They had a they had something they wanted to say. They really they tried their best to say it, and we all are along for the ride. It's fun. And the last episode that we did was Faithful Followers, which I have to say is one of the le- It's one of the more um, I'm sorry, what episodes? And then we get. Where you go directly into Undue Process, which is this one. Forever Night Season 2, Episode 9, Undue Process. And this one, they're really trying, they're trying to say something. Far more so, I mean, I guess they kind of were in Faithful Followers, but this one's a little bit more heavy-handed. But before we get there, hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. And this is Come In, 81 Kilo. need a special intro for that like i say come in and you go 81 kilo or do we just go come in 81 kilo and we make it like a radio sound oh oh there's probably an effect for that do you want me to check real quick yeah go ahead buzz hey come in 81 kilo (laughs) perfect yes but before we get started i'm rachel and i'm matt and this is come in 81 kilo It works. Yeah. All right. Oh, we start off pretty heavy in this episode. We don't get, well, have we had one where we just straight started with a murder? Yeah, yeah. Most of them there are. And this kind of is, I guess. But it's like we're in the middle of the investigation. Right. This is Yeah, this one, we don't see the murder event because that would probably be even more troubling than the rest of the episode. Yeah, I don't think we want to see so a child. So we just start off 
at the crime scene, everybody's already arrived. Oh no, we we start off with, hey Natalie, center. can you can you come on down? And Natalie's like, oh. Well, they're at a call center. I mean, oh, that's right. Yeah, they're at a call center, and Natalie's yeah. so, taking cancel calls. Cancel all that. Yeah, and they're giving out flyers, and they're looking for this little girl named Cynthia Luce, who, as it turns out, is Natalie's goddaughter. And her goddaughter is missing, and they are pretty sure they know who did it. And it's this guy named Ronald Galt, and he is a prior child molester. Um, he. Yeah, he has a known history. Yeah, he has a known history. So he is a sex sex offender, a sexual predator, a known sexual predator. And he has been identified. And so they're pretty sure that's who they're looking for because they had a child witness and they had a neighbor who witnessed it. And they're hoping to find her alive. But then Nick and Skanky walk in. And Natalie looks up and Nick looks at her and she knows. And he's like, come on, Natalie. We found her, and we need your help. And uh, my first thought was, oh, good. More of Natalie's family has appeared, only to be killed for plot purposes. Because <laughs> the last oh, time... Oh, no. The, I mean, not to make light of the fact that this whole entire episode is about, like, the murder of a child and the injustice of... I mean, the injustice of any murder, but uh, sort of the particular impact that this type of crime has... But I can't help but notice that once again, Natalie's family has been used as plot fodder to advance, to, to get us to say something interesting. She lost her brother. Now she's lost her goddaughter. Uh, she's going to lose at least six, seven grandparents. I don't know. Anyway, so. Well, you can have up to eight. <laughs> so we know the bad guys out there, Ron Galt, and we find out that um, there's like people after him like citizen groups are attempting to find him it is a madhouse vigilantes i mean volunteer groups volunteer groups are out and about combing the streets trying to find ron galt and they have to take natalie to go identify the body and they do and it's really sad because they like lift the sheet and nick is like right with her and he helps her stand and they are they do it right before Cohen brings the woman who was supposed to be the coroner to identify the body. Well, wouldn't they need somebody who actually knew Cynthia? But it to didn't have to be body? Natalie. It could have been another family member. It could have been somebody. Somebody else could have identified the body, but Natalie felt like she had to identify it in a in a professional capacity. She was expecting to work. I on wonder this if as she thought it would be better. In the grand scheme of things, for her to identify the body instead of Cynthia's parents. That's true. If that's something that she could do but, to reduce their trauma. But often that what happens is they take the body out of where it's found. So you're not seeing sort of in situ what they look like. You get more of a sterilized, is yeah. this them? And so Natalie will forever... <clears throat> have to remember her goddaughter lying in the grass like that. And that's really hard. But Cohen has brought a woman named Emma Reston. And she is another coroner. And she is here to take over the case for Natalie because Natalie is too close, which I don't think anybody is arguing with. Natalie should absolutely not have been allowed to work on this case at all. No one should ever have even assumed she would. Right. I don't think it would have been a stretch for Nick or Skanky to say, 
hey, let's see if we can get somebody else to right, come like, do this. Like an acquaintance? Like a parent of a... No, no. Let's let's see if we can get another coroner. Let's see if we can get another Emmy oh, oh, to come in here and do this. Before they even... Yeah, before they to even took Natalie her in. there. I mean, uh, they take her there, but I don't think it would have been hard for anyone to say, listen, we don't think Natalie should be doing this. Let's hold off for a minute. See if we can find another Emmy. Because Natalie is fully expecting to work on this case. Right. When Cohen shows up, she's like, uh, yes, I identified her. I'm going to need a minute to stop crying before I can give you a preliminary report. And Cohen's like, no, no, you don't understand. You're not on this. And that's not my call. That's somebody else's call. And you were supposed to have been informed. Yeah, you were supposed to have been informed, but mm, I guess that call was never made. Cohen's literally like, but I guess nobody made that call. Cohen, you should have made that call. (laughs) Yeah. Who was supposed to make the call, Cohen? Are you not the, wouldn't you think if, well, I guess because Natalie works with a bunch of different departments, she doesn't necessarily have like a a captain. Right. But Cohen could have thought, okay, here's, here's a line of thought. Cohen finds out, oh, Natalie is not going to be on this case. Yeah. Authorities. Powers that be yeah. decided she's too close. We're going to bring in an impartial medical examiner. And and somewhere in the powers that be, oh, we'll go ahead and notify Natalie. Yeah. They Cohen, should have, her. Cohen should have said, oh, yeah, Natalie, before we do anything here. Did anybody contact you? Before she went to work in the call center, she should have been put on leave of absence. Yes. Yeah. She should have. And they should have notified her immediately. Listen, if we find her, we're not going to call you. We've already got another ME lined up for this. But this was the 90s. I guess it was. Nobody had a cell phone. Maybe they all knew, but nobody could get in touch with her. That's a good point. That's a good point (laughs) because... Nobody could send that text. (laughs) After this scene... We cut to Ron Galt. Yeah, because there's a manhunt for Ron Galt. Vigilantes are, I mean, volunteers and, are combing the streets. And somebody recognizes him yeah. on the street. Which this is a done thing. This happened in real life. There was a serial killer in L.A. who was murdering older women, pretty much anybody he felt like killing. And he got recognized on the street. And he ended up having a mob chasing him. And he jumped into a police car and asked them to arrest him to save his life. Galt doesn't quite get that far, but he definitely gets recognized, which... And then the one person on the street with a cell phone calls it in. Yeah, calls it in. <laughs> and then Skanky's, like, getting a hot dog or something, and he's, he's you know, voicing his support for vigilante justice. He's like, you know... Oh, they're not there yet. We're not to the hot dog stand yet. I just realized they're still at the... We're still at the crime scene because they're looking around. They're trying to find evidence around. And Skanky's like, you know, these people really should just be killed. I mean, what does it take to pick up the phone, right? Probably some pea brain bureaucrat in the mayor's office. Didn't want to miss the symphony. Thought the call could wait till the morning. And Natalie has to live with that image of the little girl for the rest of her life. Unbelievable. We better find Galt before these vigilantes do. Yeah, well, it wouldn't surprise me if this ends up ugly, Nick. Find Galt twisting in the wind somewhere, and if you ask me, the old rope dance is too good for him. Something slow and excruciating would be more my choice. Like, this type of person, they just need to be taken out of the gene pool. 
And like, I don't know. I don't think the people that are hunting for him on the street are all that wrong. And you know what I noticed in this entire episode? Nick never voices an opinion about how he, he feels He never says, skanky, you're on your bullshit again. He never once is like, I don't know, I, I kind of think we're law enforcement officers and we should enforce the law. He's just like, mm-hmm. Usually there's at least one line <laughs> yeah. where Nick says something like, you know, skanky, that's a little bit wrong. Yeah. In fact, Nick is strangely silent in this entire episode. I think he has like four lines of dialogue. Yeah, he's it's a very quiet yeah, episode he's, for Nick. He's a this is a pen you know, he just got out of a cult. <laughs> he just got out of a cult. He <laughs> he's just, traumatized, yeah, he's still he, processing. He just spent the last like three weeks high on LSD worshiping the sun. He is just he's coming back to reality, okay? <laughs> he can't be expected to just leap directly into this shit. So every time Skanky's on his bullshit, he just lets Skanky roll. And you know what I think part of it is? He knows Skanky's on his bullshit. He knows he doesn't mean it. He knows if it actually came to it, Skanky wouldn't do it. Skanky's right. it's, just it's, bluster. It's Skanky's way of distancing himself yeah, he's, from the human connection. Skanky is an external processor. And Nick is just giving him safe space to process this stuff externally by literally ignoring everything that he's saying. <laughs> not, not reacting at all. I mean, he reacts a little bit because Skanky's like, man, I wouldn't be surprised if we find him with his feet dangling in the wind. And Nick's like, one time my feet dangled in the wind. And he just looks off into the distance. The distance of memory. Because we immediately slip back into a flashback. And it's a mob. And they're preparing to lynch somebody. And we actually see somebody get hung. And then we kind of like a small time slip happens and everybody's gone. And this guy's still hanging. And, <laughs> and Nick, because of course it's Nick, breaks the ropes that are holding his hand and then pulls the rope off the tree. He just pulls it down so hard it breaks. But he's still hanging. He doesn't have any kind of leverage or well we okay. don't know exactly how vampires fly so he could be flying down really yeah. hard i was gonna say he could have just flown towards the ground like real real hard and it snaps and the then rope. yank yeah he could have just flown up slightly when they tried to lynch him and it just wouldn't have worked that would have been pretty funny could have just fucked with him maybe he was doing that the whole time just so he didn't get a bruise yeah it could have <laughs> i don't know but yeah and then that's it. I mean, that's the flashback. It's just him. And then he pulls the hood off over his face and he's like. <laughs> and then we go back and that's it. I mean. All right. And then Nick is like, oh, he went that way. And Skanky's like, what are you, part bloodhound? And Nick is, doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond at all. He just lets that lie. And then he goes over and Maybe he's he like. Maybe he had laryngitis or something. He just walks over and there's blood on a stick. And he's like, that's good. That's called blood. And Skanky just takes it in stride. He's like, huh. But he pokes it first. Yeah, Nick pokes it. He's like, <laughs> he sticks his ungloved finger in this blood. That's why the blood type test failed. No, it's... Because it, okay. it was contaminated sure. with, by Nick's vampire finger. Sure. I mean, Nick's line here is just, uh, well, I don't know where he went, but wherever he is, he's injured. He's hurting, I think is what he says. Yeah. You can tell on account of how there's blood here, I guess. On a broken stick. And he just says it's Galt's blood. 
He doesn't attribute it to Cynthia Luce, who was clearly murdered here, and definitely this could have been her blood. And Skanky doesn't question the fact that Nick knows this is her blood. His blood. He just rolls with it, because at this point, Skanky's beyond questioning this. Nick is clearly never going to rise to his bait. He's always like, hey, Nick, are you part bloodhound? What do you mean go around? He's always throwing these like, anytime you want to tell me, man, I am here. I already emotional know emotional bids. Emotional bids. I already know your secret, but I don't want to out you. I don't want you I don't want to take you out of the coffin. I'm here. So when you're ready to come out, I- I'm here for you. And you know I'm here for you. But this is Skanky when, is giving Nick a safe space. He is giving Nick. They you know what? They are each other's safe space. As far as the 90s go, this is a pretty good bromance, okay? Skanky and Nick. But this is when Ron Galt gets spotted in public because he's injured, he's drunk, he's in an alley, and he tries to, like, doctor his head, and then he sticks a hat on to make himself not look like Ron Galt anymore, or maybe to cover the injury, I guess, and he gets immediately spotted. And this is when the one guy with a cell phone calls 911. And Skanky is, like, getting dinner. He's getting a hot dog or something. And Nick is just leaning against the car. So when Skanky is just, he's just pontificating. I don't know. I think, really, like, John Galt should just be killed. I think we should just kill people that do this kind of stuff. And Nick is over there like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when he comes over, Nick has been on the radio. We don't hear the radio, but we know he's been on the radio because he's like, they found him. He's down, like, four blocks from here. I'm going to go cut him off. Here, you take the car. All right. Dispatch 81 Kilo. We'll respond. Galt's on foot, heading south on Arlington near Charles. He's got a gang after him. Oh, man, if they catch him, they'll tear him up. Let's go. Look, you take the car around. I'll, uh, I'll cut him off. Yeah, but Nick, Arlington's four blocks from here. How are you going to get there for crying out loud? Nick! Nick! Yeah, you go around. You, you... take the car, yeah. go around, and I'll cut him off. And then but Nick, he literally whooshes from the <laughs> sidewalk. But it's fine because Skanky got the code word around. It was fine. Okay. <laughs> That's their secret code word. If Nick says around, he knows Nick's going to do whatever Nick does to get there before he does. So he's just like getting in the car and he's like, what? That place is four blocks from here. How are you going to get there? But Nick, of course, doesn't hear him because he literally is standing on the sidewalk and then he just takes off. Yep. So Nick does get there first, obviously, because he takes the the way he, the vampire as flies. As the crow flies. As the vampire oh. flies. As the bat flies. I don't know what you want to say. He gets there first, and he grabs Galt, and he's literally got Galt in front of him. He does not put Galt behind him. He holds Galt in right. front of him, and he's like, guys, stop he trying to kill Galt. He uses Galt as a shield for himself <laughs> instead of shielding Galt from the mob. Yeah, and then Skinky shows up, and he shoots into the air. And there's this really low budget, I don't even know where it got released, movie called Vampires Anonymous. And it's about this vampire that joins like a Vampires Anonymous type situation. Anyway, there's a part where we talk to this one character and this guy outside is trying to get his attention by shooting directly up into the air. And the guy comes out and he goes, you know, they come down, don't you? And the guy's like, no, they don't. And he goes, where do you think they go? (laughs) And every time I see anything in a movie or a television show where a character fires into the air, all I can think is, you know they come down, don't you? 
they come that's down. That's really dangerous in a city. People yeah. have died. People have literally died from other people shooting guns into the air. And Skanky's just like, he could have shot down at the ground. Right. But he shoots up into the air. I'm just going to point that out. And they end up getting the mob under control. They get Galt to the caddy and they get him in the caddy. And once again, we have Nick, one other officer and a murder suspect in a convertible. (laughs) Have we learned nothing? (laughs) Did we learn nothing from capital offense? I guess not. And we go to the police precinct and this is where we're kind of laying the groundwork for where we're going with this everything up to here was set up and also skanky has been kind of talking us through our theme is who gets to dispense justice who gets to decide who's guilty and who's not guilty and where does that leave us like if you're tried in the court of public opinion no matter how slam dunk the case is do you deserve to be punished by the public as well and i think Nick's flashback is supposed to elucidate on that. Yeah. Because Galt passes the lineup. Nobody can recognize him. And Natalie is watching the interview and Nick and Natalie kind of have a moment where Nick comes in and he's like, you don't have to watch this. And she's like, no, no, I I kind of really do. And Galt is just playing with them because he's drunk and he's like, I'll make a statement. I'll make a statement right now. You just get somebody in here. Like, I right. want to make a statement. He's been through the system before. Yeah. And he knows he's playing them because he, he has the right to wait for an attorney. If he doesn't wait for an attorney, if he doesn't want to wait for an attorney, he has to waive that right. And then if he makes a statement and he's intoxicated, it won't be admissible. So he can say whatever the hell he wants and none of it matters. And that's what he's doing. Because we're just driving home the point of how unlikable this gentleman is. And poor Natalie has to sit there and listen to it. And this is the part where Natalie is like, he should be dead. He should be dead. (sighs) Sounds like Galt wants to come clean. The man's drunk. He's messing with us. He's been through the system before. He knows that a confession under the influence is inadmissible. Oh, absolutely. Tomorrow he'll recant and say he was coerced. Who's his duty counsel? Oh, guess who? Shepard. She's on the way. Shepard. Yeah, the original leftist bleeding heart. Liberal murders are people, too. Captain, I have the preliminary... We should kill him. I think the only characters who don't call for his immediate death are Cohen, the lawyer, and Nick. Everybody else is just like, yeah, kill that fucker. He does uh, not Reston deserve to doesn't live. make a statement that until is true. much later. That 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 is true. That is true. But he uh he's getting a police he's getting a public defender. They're going to be assigning him a lawyer because of course he's entitled to a lawyer. So Skanky says, Who is it? Yeah, who is Who's it? Who's his counsel? And it turns out it's the woke lawyer. <laughs> the <laughs> bleeding leftist liberal the, the liberal, liberal leftist bleeding heart. Bleeding heart Every murderer is a good guy lady. And he's like, ah, fuck. We're literally getting the, like, high-powered public defender that is known for getting people out of their crime. And she is getting assigned to Galt? Are you fucking kidding me? She has gotten people off who we had far more evidence against. This is not looking good. And this is when he said, guess the bad guy, I guess the good guys lose tonight. And the bad guys get coddled. Because... 
this woman's going to come in and, and she's going to get him out. And he says that to Reston, which for me absolutely sets up. Yeah. Oh, Reston's going to take care of stuff. Yeah, Reston's going to handle that it. She was, she was too good of an actor to not be critical to the plot. Yeah, pretty much in the show, anytime we have a a random member join the party, they're they're usually the bad guy. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of variation in this. Yeah. Um. And so we, it's yeah, it, it fits the pattern, the the usual pattern. But Galt is injured, and they ask Emma Reston to provide him with care because they need to prove that they are doing everything in their power to ensure that he's okay. They don't want there to be any wiggle room for anyone to say that he was mistreated. Right. Yeah. yeah, they want to avoid any police brutality charges. Right, because we don't want to generate... That might generate sympathy for him, and we don't want that. But, of course, the lawyer immediately gets him out. And of course. And I kind of like how we play this character, how this woman plays this character. And it's sort of like, I'm just doing my job. You need to do your job. If you want to beat me, you need to be better. You right. need to do better. Which um, is exactly the, the kind of competition that I like. Yeah. The like, I'm not trying to get him out. You aren't trying hard enough to keep him in. It's literally my job. Right. If I can just waltz in here and get him out. Yeah. It means you aren't being as... Thorough. Thorough. Yeah. Yeah. As critical on your your whole process. Yeah. As you should be. Yeah. I should not be able to come in here and get a like high confidence arrest. Yeah. Just out. Right. And she says, you know, we have a little thing called due process. You have to prove he's the bad guy. The simple fact is that we have something here called due process. And as much as you would like to see Ronald Galt pay for this crime, you must first establish that it is his crime. And right now, I don't see the evidence. I don't see any. You, you don't get to just listen to the court of public opinion. You, you literally have to do your job and do an investigation and find evidence and prove to me that this guy is guilty. Prove to everybody. Don't prove it to me because I'm always going to be, I'm going to be his defender. But you need to make me lose by being so good at your job. I can't win. And she does throw them a bone. She does. Because she's like, how about he needs protection? Because you're right. There's people out there trying to kill him. What if you put a couple of officers with him to make sure he stayed safe? Wink, wink. Wink, wink. And she is very good at selling this as like a, I'm giving this to you as a concession. But it's really more of like a, if you're worried he's going to run, here's a loophole you can exploit. Well, and the way she initiates this makes it come off as condescending because she tells Skanky, why don't you keep a watch on him? Yeah. And Skanky's like, the fuck you say? And it's so traumatizing for Nick. He doesn't say anything because he doesn't say anything in most of this episode, but he does go into a flashback. <gasps> and this is him showing up at a dude's house uh, because this is one oh, of the yeah. guys that his, hung him. His flashback transition. I was like, keep your head in, the, in yeah. the office, Nick. Yeah, everyone's talking. It's a highly like emotional situation. And Nick just is like, 
<sighs> his head turns toward the blinds. You know what? He really is a little spacey. Maybe he's just a little spacey this whole episode because everybody else is trying to have a serious conversation and he's over there just like reminiscing about that time he got killed by a mob. <laughs> Maybe it's hot. it's intrusive thoughts, you know. He can't always he can't always fight this yeah. stuff, but he's remembering that time he showed up at this dude's house because this guy was one of the guys that had him lynched. And the guy's like, "You're dead," and he's like, "Correct, you are correct." And he's like, "Why did you think that you could do that? Like, why did you think you could lynch me?" Everybody and, knew you did it, and he's like, "Oh, everybody knows." And that was right. good enough for you. Now right. the boss said you did it. Boss's word is good enough. Yeah. And Nick is like, hmm, okay. That, that's fair. But So you um, and the boss. Okay. That's got, who I'm going gotcha. for. Gotcha. I'm going to kill you and then I'm going to kill him. And so he kills that guy. And then we go back to the present. And the lawyer is saying, like, listen, I can't sacrifice law for mob mentality. Isn't your job called law enforcement? I thought the whole purpose of what you did was to enforce the law. How about you protect him and you do your fucking job? And right about this time is when we find out that the blood work doesn't match. The blood type is inconclusive. It's too popular. Too common. Common. <laughs> I was like, it's not like you get to choose it. What would be the word for that? It's too common. And so they have to let him go. They have no positive <sighs> ID. They don't have definitive blood work. They have nothing. And this... This is when she's like, you could protect him. That would be a way around this. And then she's walking by and she's a little smug because, I mean, she's doing a good Which job. Which she is. Um, I don't think she quite realizes Natalie's position in all this. Yeah. Because she's real, real cocky in front of Natalie. Yeah. And I think if she knew how close Natalie was to this case... She would have been a little more compassionate. I think it's more like I did my job and I allowed the police to keep doing their job too. So I'm a little bit satisfied that this is all kind of coming up roses. And Natalie is not happy about that. And she tells her she's a smug bitch and slaps her in the face. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why are you looking so happy? I'm just doing my job. Why? You smug bitch. Oh. I can't blame Natalie. Yeah. This is a heightened emotional situation. This woman is actively trying to... Actively condescending. Actively condescending. Yes. Yes. And I have listened to plenty of trials where the defenders do some things that make you feel like it would be difficult to be a defender because they have to put, they have to put people through stuff. In a situation where, like, this is slam dunk, you know the bad guy's the bad guy. But as a public defender, you have to do your job. And so sometimes that requires a little bit of a a reach. It requires a little bit of a reach. Like, one of the ones I just listened to not too long ago was about this lady who had apparently read Fifty Shades of Grey and had gotten into the BDSM community and ended up getting murdered. And so the defender framed this as her fault because she had been dabbling in more aggressive sex. And actually, because this defense was so odious and the public was so disgusted by it, they ended up like creating a rule. I think it's, it was in Australia or New Zealand that you, you can't use that as a defense. That consenting to rough sex does not, 
does not mean you consent to be murdered. Right. And you can't use the consent to rough sex as like, well, he didn't know it. He just choked her for too long. And they ended up, like the the precedent they set was you can't consent to your own death. You can't consent to your own murder. Obviously. And I just think, I think that the the prevalence of the like the nasty defender the i will go to any lengths to get my client off is not an unearned trope it's not a, that's not plucked right. out it of the exists air. in it, reality it it does, is every public defender like this no are some yes and I, we don't get this from nowhere if you you know some right. tropes you're like Meh, that that's not real life but this one in particular i think Anyway, well, that's my soapbox for that. But then we cut to Natalie, because Natalie is so shaken up about this. She's burning the paper flyers in her gas fireplace. Is your chimney rated for soot, Natalie? Natalie. Come on. You can't burn things that are not gas in it's a, a gas It's a decorative fi- fireplace. It is a dec- It is a fire decoration. It is not for burning your papers. This is, anyway, this is a pet peeve. This is a pet peeve. Anytime I see what is obviously a gas fireplace, because there's a couple times where Nick uses his fireplace to burn stuff. Dude, you turn your fireplace on with a remote control. (laughs) (laughs) You need to keep shit out of there. Right? Okay? Keep it clean. Keep it clean. You need some logs. There are sensors in there. Yeah. You need those, like, log things, which are actually heat sinks. That's their purpose. And you need maybe... Maybe if you push the boat out, some glass rocks or some shit, some something. We we lived in one apartment Lava where somebody rocks. had put um, fiberglass because it looked when you lit up the fireplace, it looked like ash. <laughs> Which it works. It did work. It's not recommended, but it's glass fibers, so it's not going to burn. It right. just glows cozily. The only thing Natalie really has going for her in this situation is she's clearly painted her apartment. It's not orange anymore. It's not that like rage orange that she had before. She's redecorated. Maybe after after everything that happened with Nick and only the lonely, she was like, yeah. fuck it, I'm painting. And after the date at the nursery. Yeah, and she got rid of the paper wall. The paper wall that they had oh, their with argument their behind. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's got like a reasonable adult apartment, not like a Oh my God! What do we have laying around the set that we can tag? Or together? this is was that was only the lonely in season two or season one? I mean, it's season one, isn't it? Okay, so it's different sets. It's different sets, but still, <laughs> just it's a nice apartment. Is what I'm going for a better, a better apartment. And she's talking about how she's talked to Cynthia Luce's dad, and she says he's never going to recover from this, which is actually the exact same line she used in "For I Will Repay." When she's talking about Richard's wife and daughter, she's, she's like, his wife is never going to recover from this. But after Richard died and the wife believed that he'd actually died, she was like, well, I've got my daughter. I'm going to be able to carry on. I'm going to make it. Natalie, I'm not so sure your estimate of what people can handle emotionally is accurate. Just because you haven't been able to commit to a long-term relationship I don't think it's because Natalie hasn't been able to commit. That's that is unfair. That was a that was a cheap shot at Natalie. That was a cheap fucking shot. Natalie would go for Nick immediately. She's already committed. Already. There's a line. We're gonna get to it in this episode that I think is hysterical and it relates to that. So we're just gonna keep rolling so I can get to it. Okay. So 
Knight and Skanky, the homicide cops, are once again assigned to protect somebody at a safe house. Which I was 80% confident that they were going to take Ron Galt back to Nick's apartment. Yeah, you were. You kept saying it. You were like, oh, they're taking him to the apartment. always take the person that they're protecting to Nick's apartment. Right. Maybe this time he was like, ew, not on my couch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not... (laughs) <laughs> In retrospect, all of the every other person that they have protected yeah. has been a young a, female, a young woman. And he was like, "I am not putting that old janky dude on my satin fuck sheets. No, thank you. We are getting him a hotel room, <laughs> or the department is issuing me cotton sheets because there's no way he's going on my black satin fuck sheets." Nick I'm draws need the line. Some six mil Look, plastic Nick to cover draws all the, the furniture and beds. <laughs> He just shows up and everything's got newspaper on it. (laughs) (laughs) Even the floor. Even the floor. Nick, look, Nick draws the line, okay? He doesn't know where. It changes from time to time. But when he draws it, there it is. It's a moving line, but it moves in a predictable area. Yeah, but it's a line, okay? And so, no, he doesn't go back to his apartment. They get him like a hotel out of town. Maybe that was the stipulation was like, well, my apartment's not really out of town. Because they take him out of town. And again, Nick falls into a flashback as Skanky is kind of triggering this recurring kind of intrusive thought about um, him understanding the impulse for vigilante justice. Uh, We don't really get anything in this one except that he killed a guy and he's going after the next guy. I mean, the the backstory, the, the flashback in this episode is not as developed as some of the previous ones. We don't really have any characters. We just have Nick and then Nick killing people. Right. We don't have any context about what happened, who, who got killed, how did Nick get accused, how did he get caught, what was he doing, was he living there, was he just passing through, is, is you know, it's kind of like the episode where he gets in the, the nun, the nunnery. We yeah. don't know what, actually, this is exactly the same as when he gets in the nunnery. As when he gets in the nunnery, I just realized that because he's being Except chased. Except he's not, he's not um, hunting people down afterward. Right. Because he didn't get caught and lynched. He just just getting chased. Maybe he gets chased out of places pretty frequently. This could be a thing that occurs a lot. He yeah. may not remember the context because who gives a shit? That was like, that was June. It happens like pretty semi-regularly. It's just another Thursday. It's just another Thursday. I don't remember why, why. They just showed up. They lynched me. I got mad. I killed a couple of people. And I only remember it because of the way it resolves. Because, of course, it has a resolution that we all knew was coming. Right? We haven't seen him in forever. Oh, and I'm so glad he's back. You know what? We got that one little taste of the radio program and then it went away. And I need the radio program back. But we go to Natalie because Natalie was like, well, I could sit around here at home and I could mope. Or, and this is a thought, I could redo all of Reston's stuff because I don't trust anybody to do a good job on this but me. Which, you know what? I thoroughly understand this impulse. I get it. I get it. Natalie can't sit home. She goes back to the lab. She sneaks in because there's a guard walking around on rounds. And he has the little dial thingy that I mentioned in Dark Knight. And it's like a little clock, like a winding thing that guards on rounds would carry 
and each station they had to visit would have a key. And you had to stick that key in there and turn it. And it was kind of like a, you knew the guard had made all the rounds because he'd gotten all of his keys turned. Right. You could check his clock and make sure that he didn't take too long between stations. But she can't even find the samples. So she ends up having to go in and get new samples from Cynthia's body. Matt was like, what is she, like six feet tall? It, look, okay. <laughs> the body shape under the sheet is really tall. There very, very well may have been some kind of um, content restrictions on how heavily you could imply a child's body. That's a very good point. They, they could have been unable to show a child-sized dead body. Well, it's Canada. All you have to go is, oh, sorry. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were restrictions. I mean, there were restrictions now, but some of them make sense. Some of them don't make sense. Um, and some of them, you know what? I can kind of understand this. You're in a situation where, like, trigger warning doesn't exist. You don't have ratings. You don't have that clever little thing in the top every time you start it that's, like, sexual TV content. TV Y7. Yeah, it's, like, sexual content, cigarette imagery, or whatever. You know, it, you don't get that. So if you're going into this blind, you don't know a child body is coming. That's a bit much. I, I can get... I understand that. So... She goes in, and we do get this really poignant hand scene where she pulls the child's hand out, Cynthia Luce's hand, and she holds her hand for a minute because she's there to get stuff from under the nails. She's there right, to get... but this is her goddaughter's hand. But it's her goddaughter. She's probably held this hand before, but not in this context. And it's a really kind of poignant, sad scene, and it's a, it's a slow scene. It's a moment. It's a pause in the episode. Where we're kind of like, oh, we realize the emotional impact that this is having on Natalie. And then she she does her job. She gets samples and she's going to rerun the blood work. And then we go back to the hotel. Because Skanky and Nick have gotten Galton a hotel. And Skanky has, I mean, he mentions he had a recorder. They've had a bit of a conversation about it. In case Galt gets it. chatty. Yeah, just in case. And now Skanky is asleep. And Nick is like, hmm, I wonder if I could make him chatty. I could do that. I could do that, right? And so he goes over and wakes Galt up. And Galt's like, you know what? I'm actually not feeling good. I think I'm just going to sleep. And Nick's like, you know what? No, you want to confess. And he's like, no, I don't actually. You really, really wanted to talk about this. He's like, no. Go ahead and tell me. He's like, no, no, no. I was drunk. I knew it would be in and miss. But I was just fucking with you. And Nick's like, I know, I know. But I think part of you wanted to do it, right? And the Look guy's at like, me. I don't know. Then you're like, boom, 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 boom. Which, does that show up on the tape recorder? <laughs> does that show up on the tape recorder? What's that thumping sound? <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. What? What is he doing? It'd be like if Paul Muadib from Dune was trying to rank, or like wrangle a confession. And on the tape, you hear the like, the voice. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me. Uh, no, I don't know. He gets him to confess. He's like, all right, spill the beans. And he's like, okay, I picked her up off the street. I took her to this place. I, I tied covered her, her up. up I covered her up. Stop blah, crying. Blah, blah. I mean, he does the whole, he goes through the whole thing, which is supposed to be a very emotional moment. And it is because we just saw the sweet little hand scene. And then they do this thing that I don't love. And we do this a lot when we portray, like, 
child molesters or sexual predators or however you want to describe them on television. And we give them a cop out. We make them crazy. We always right. do it. I, they, they pick me. They tell me to do it. I saw her and she was asking me to do it. They wanted me to do it. And they always leave them this wiggle room of, well, they were mentally unstable. They were, they had a, some kind of mental illness, some kind of undiagnosed, untreated mental illness, which is possible, is fair, but we always give them that little get out of jail free card, that little, well, he was crazy. That's why he did it. Instead of just being like, there are people who are completely rational and who are completely sane who still choose to do the wrong thing. And in some ways, that is exponentially worse. That may be why they portray them all as you know, un mentally unstable. Because yeah. to, like, to tell a story like this and convey, oh yeah, there's this guy... Who likes to do this to kids. Yeah. And he's intelligent and rational and mentally stable is way scarier than to have the, a person that does the same things, but then, oh, the voices tell me to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, now if, if you're mapping that into reality, oh, I live in a reality where perfectly sane and rational seeming people can do these despicable things and and like maintain a clear line of thought about the whole process. It's terrifying compared to, oh, the only people who do these kinds of things are like certifiably insane. Yeah. That makes the world feel a little bit more comfortable. I mean, it does, but it does, it does kind of, okay. So then it also equates mental illness with, um, depravity. With yes. Villainy. Yeah. That, that's the downside. Yeah. Of you know, the, oh, oh, everybody who's bad has a mental illness. The bad behavior illness. is mentally ill. Therefore, everyone who has a mental illness is bad. It's like, why we, why do we make our villains disfigured? Our villains are often, most of the time, the bad guy is disfigured, disabled, different, like physically different. And this has different. been a talking point of a lot of communities Yeah, saying, hey, the way that you are portraying, you know, the way you portray your bad guys as the bad guy does bad things, and as a result... They exhibit these things. Yeah. Uh, physical differences. Physical yeah. differences. Mental differences. Yeah. Whatever. When you make the association one way, you're also making the association the other way. Yes. And that creates this kind of pervasive bias yes. in the society to say, oh... Here's a physically disfigured person. Pe they're people, scary. They're they scary. They're scary. Yeah. Like that's your gut reaction because right. the only time you see physically disfigured people in film and movies 
is when they're bad guys. Yeah. So then, you know, from childhood, the only association you have is the only time I've seen disfigured people is when they're bad guys. Thus, disfigured people, people are, are bad all guys. bad guys. Yep. Yep. Well, I just wanted to point that out because it's a lot. Um, and I just wanted to get that out there because yeah. I feel like it's something that needs to be said and it doesn't get talked about enough. And I know it's the 90s, but we're better now, but I don't think we're any different now. So maybe it's time to start changing that. But Nick is still on a rampage in his flashback. He's still having some intrusive thoughts about that time that he killed a bunch of people. But it's different from the other time he killed a bunch of people. That time he got hung, but then yeah. he's always hung. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like that one? <laughs> no. Not the moment. Oh, right. was that was that the wrong time for I don't, I wasn't ready. Okay, well, I love this one because he was like, the guy's like, you ki- you killed you killed the you killed somebody. That's why we killed you because you were a bad guy. And he's like, well, you were wrong, and I'm gonna kill you because you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you believed somebody. Yeah. So I'm gonna kill you. So I'm gonna kill you. I'm not gonna go after the person who spread the lie. No, 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 no. no. That's that's and, too much work. Mm-mm. I'm just. I'm here for the shallow conflict resolution. Yeah. Yes. You believed I killed somebody, so you killed me, and I'm so mad at you, I'm going to kill you, and this does not, this is not, um, this is not contradict itself at all, and I, I will take no notes. And so he just kills this guy. And then we go back, and he's like, oh, because he just got this guy's confession. He coerced this confession. He He did, in the most... In the most supernatural sense of the word coerce. And he is having kind of an existential crisis about it. And he ends up taking the tape out. Those little itty bitty tapes. And he pulls the tape out. He destroys the tape. I mean, now he knows for certain this guy did it. But the way that he got it does not sit right with him. And so he destroys it. And in the meantime, we go back to Natalie. Because Natalie has realized that Dr. Reston did the labs wrong. (gasps) This is all wrong. And she's like, how could she have botched this so badly? And then we go back Unless to Skanky. Unless she did it on purpose. Then we go back to Skanky and Nick, because Skanky and Nick are chatting. They're watching Galt sleep like five feet from them and talking in a normal voice. And they're like, how do you think he can sleep like that? And Nick's like, hmm, hmm, because he doesn't have He doesn't ever talk in this episode. And Skanky's like, oh, you know, he just sleeps like. Like nothing happened, and then he's like, "Actually, does he look? Does he look okay to you?" And Nick's like, "Um, maybe." And then he ends up; his heart stops, and Nick must notice immediately because he can't hear his heart anymore. <gasps> and he's like, "Nick, he's like Skanky, call nine one one. His heart stopped." But he before he says that, Skanky's literally like he doesn't look good, and Nick goes back into another flashback. Instead of staying in the moment, in the, Come on, clearly Nick. an emergent Keep moment. Keep your head in the game. He's just like, he can't help it. The past just smacks him in the face. It's like because the opposite of whoosh, because he just stands still the whole time. Right. <laughs> yes, because you know what he's remembering? La Croix. La Croix. Because who was behind all this shit? Who did we know was behind all this shit? 
Lacroix. And as tired as I was in the Faithful Followers episode of the like, Lacroix did it. Flashback. I like this one. Vengeance. Are you satisfied? I did what I had to do. Oh, of course. Um, an eye for an eye and all that. Yes. Well, I can't say that I don't approve. But tell me, Nicholas, why do you think they accused you of killing the woman? It was all hearsay. Indeed. Started by whom, I wonder? Oh, come, come. You wouldn't want them to know who really did it, would you? <laughs> Look at you now. You're guilty of the same crime that they are. You do entertain me, Nicholas. Betraying your own high-minded ideals. I knew you had it in you. Well done. <laughs> I like when Lacroix is delicately manipulative. I, I believe Lacroix is manipulative. I'm here for mani manipulative Lacroix. I love manipulative Lacroix. But I don't like the like, I bet against you. And now I have to give him a bottle of blood and we're going to go celebrate. That, I don't care about that's not the LaCroix I care about. This one is the like, oh, that's weird. You killed all those people because they thought you killed somebody. Well, who do you think killed the person that you got blamed for? Who do you think? Vengeance, Nicola. Who do you think spread the rumor about you being the bad guy? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, weird. I think it was me. And Nick is like, you son of a bitch. LaCroix just like, it didn't take very much to get you to start murdering people, Nick. I would like you to start thinking about this. I will be back in a week, and I expect you to have written a five-page paper detailing <laughs> why, it, why it took all of one lynching to get you to go on a murder spree. And why, why this line is so accurate. An eye for an eye will leave the world blind. Yep. He's like, and I'm going to leave you with that. He just disappears into the shadows. And then we go back into the present because Galt's heart is stopped. And he's like, Skanky, call 911. His heart stopped. And Skanky's like, what? What? And he's Skanky like, Skanky is struggling phone. internally with, oh. I, we could just not I think, and say we did. I think Skanky thinks. But when Skanky really like tries he i think he tries out the how about we don't and say we did yeah but he breaks down pretty quickly right because i think he thinks he's supposed to feel this one way but i don't think in his heart of hearts that skanky feels like that and he says it at the very end he's like I know I'm all bluster about this. I say it. I joke about it, but He's I like, don't mean it. I don't actually want anybody to die. Like, I don't really want that to actually happen. So he does call 911. And Nick does approximately five seconds of CPR and is like, that's it. The man's gone. And I feel like I have unique experience in this because I actually know someone personally. Not personally, but yes, personally. I have a friend who uh, his heart stopped at Panera. Do you remember that? Who is it? Uh, yeah. Um, so his heart stopped at Panera and a lady was walking by the table and she actually saw that he was blue. And it just so happened that there was someone in the 
in the Panera who knew CPR. There was an EMT in Panera, and they immediately started CPR. And it just so happened that there was a police officer. Oh, yes, I remember this. Yeah, that just so happened that there was a police officer in the parking lot that knew CPR. And so there ended up being like three people who were certified in CPR. And they rotated out doing CPR for like half an hour. For 30 fucking minutes until the... This is another matter, but until the ambulance arrived. And then they put him in, a, they got his heart restarted in the ambulance, put him in a medically induced coma. Then he woke up a week later and was fine. He's made a full recovery since. Yes, is fine. He has a pacemaker or like an alarm yeah. just because they don't know why his heart stopped. But they're like, probably it won't. Like, we don't know why it stopped. It just did. And just someone just happened to walk by at the right moment. There just happened to be this like confluence of exactly what he right. needed. And they were able to do like doing CPR works. It works. And this guy, if they had not responded within a few minutes, he'd be gone. And he has a wife and children, mo- children, yeah. multiple children. And he's okay now. Yeah. It's, wild. Because it's just wild. People just rotated out doing CPR for half right. an hour and they just kept it up until the ambulance yeah. arrived. Nick, you could have kept going and swapped out with Skanky until the ambulance arrived. Instead of just being like, well, that didn't work. How badly did you want to save him, Nick? How badly? And then Dr. Reston shows up and she's like, well, I guess this is all part of the grand design. It's just fate. He died of a coronary. He had a heart attack. I don't know. There was nothing you could have done. Yeah, he had an he had an think, evil clot, and the clot of evil dislodged, and it got stuck in his heart. And it I think evil Nick him. was skeptical because she made a very confident diagnosis. Yeah, of the cause of death. Right in away. a very short amount of time. Yeah, she walked in, she pulled up his eyelids, and then was like, "Yeah, he died of a heart attack." Yeah, coronary thrombosis or whatever. Yeah, and I, I think Nick was like, "Hold on." No, like, authority on medical examining would make such a confident statement yeah. after such a short examination. Right. So she's like, well, I she's do have to on wait her for the bullshit enzyme. again. She does say she's got to wait for the enzyme test to make it definitive. But then we go back to the precinct and good on Cohen. The lawyer's still going. She's like, it's a little weird he died in your custody. Um, Maybe we need to look into your officers and she's like are you insinuating that there was misconduct on the part of my officers because that's a little bit like slander and i could see you for that because you don't have any proof and she immediately takes a step back yeah and the lawyer's like well you'll be hearing from me and she's like just make sure you wrap up your investigation thoroughly and cohen's like oh we intend to like we need to make sure we get this guy so there is no doubt that even if he died in police custody, he would have been in police custody for the rest of his life anyway. Right. And then we get Natalie. And Natalie. Well, hold on, hold on. Oh. The lawyer leaves and Skanky's like, hey, fist bump. Yeah, go Cohen. And, and she's and like, Cohen's like, shut the fuck up and do your job. Don't get on your bullshit, Skanky. <laughs> she's like, dot those I's, cross those T's, make this water tight. And he's like, Aye, aye, Captain. And then we go back to Natalie because Natalie is researching Weston and Galt because she has the internet at home in 1997, I guess. You know, she's got that. She's got that coroner money. 
And what I think is the most funny about both of their reports is they're both 45. Reston, Reston who looks a Emma lot younger. Reston is 45. And Ron Galt is 45. Mm, okay. The, okay. Okay. <laughs> On a similar note, um, in, in support of the kind of situation where that can actually happen, I saw a, a meme thing and it was a picture of paul rudd oh and the guy from <laughs> cocoon okay um Don the di- diabetes guy oh, oh okay and they said paul rudd now is the same age as this actor the diabetes guy <laughs> um was when he played in cocoon oof no seriously paul rudd you're doing good, man. Paul Rudd's looking great. Yeah. But this is when Skanky's like, do you, Nick, do you, do you think we could have saved him? Like, do you think if we'd moved just a little bit faster, if I hadn't hesitated that like little half of a second, do you think we could have saved him? Kind of uh, blew up. CPR wouldn't have helped. You know, she made the same point to me. <sighs> Can we go home now? You're going home. I'll type up the report. You do that for me? What a guy. Right. Hey, Nick. Do you think if we had moved a little faster, we could have saved him? Yeah. Skank, don't beat yourself up, okay? Well, it's just that you never really want to see anybody dead. I mean, I say it. I joke about it. But... Yeah, I know. Go on. Good night. Thanks, partner. Wow. He's like, I know we say it, like I know I say it, but I don't I don't actually want anybody dead. And Nick's like, I know you don't, Skanky. Just go home. Go home and get some rest. And this is when Nick calls Natalie. Cause Natalie's up to shenanigans, and we need an introduction into the shenanigans that she's up to. But I love the message he leaves. Cause he's like, Natalie, I'm gonna stop by after work just to talk. <laughs> Sometimes and I'll it, use my key to get in. Sometimes it helps to talk. He just very clearly says, I'm going to drop by just to talk. Wink, I am wink. only coming over to talk. Natalie, I want to be your friend in this moment. Don't complicate this. I'm just coming over to talk. And he does. He goes over and for once. Matt was like, ho, ho, hold on. He knows how to use the door to get into a woman's What the apartment. fuck is this? this He's is supposed bullshit. to come in the window. This is unreasonable. You, does she not have a balcony? This is ridiculous. So he comes in through the door of all places. I mean, come on. And I think it's interesting. She left her fire on. Who leaves their fire on? when? I guess maybe she was so distracted. It's, it's Canada. It's probably cold. She's not there. Who leaves an open fire when there's nobody there? Uh, lots of people get their houses burned down every year, honey. She's in an apartment. Lots of people burn down their whole apartment complex every year, honey. I don't think that's true, actually. There's dozens of them. Honey. There's. I'm I gonna bet. need. I'm There's gonna dozens need, of them. I'm gonna. Need, well, you know what? Canada's on fire right now. Maybe it was Natalie. Natalie, fact, you're I supposed know. to turn off your fireplace. I and know. You leave. I know Canada's on fire because I can go out the door and smell Canada fire right now if I wanted to. I'm sorry, Canada. I hope you really get better soon. But this is when Natalie goes to. She goes to her morgue because she's she's sus. 
She thinks Reston's up to something. She catches onto this very quickly. And she has every right, every reason to ignore this. Because it's done. It's dusted. The DNA matches. He had a history of heart failure. He died of a heart attack. Everything lines up. There is no question about this whatsoever. But she's not... It's Why did Reston mess up? Why did Reston botch the blood typing so badly? So she goes in and gets her samples of her own and she ends up doing a test. And this is when Reston walks in and she's like, you could just leave this. No one would know. Oh yeah. She's holding up the vial of like black test tube. Yeah. As the black is the indicator that something was detected. Yeah, something's in there. Yeah. And Reston sees that and it's like, ah. Man, this woman's good. She could have just walked up to Reston with a vial full of black ink and been like, I know what you did. And she'd have been like, oh, you got me. Because <laughs> she didn't see her run the test. She could have kept right. playing this off. But she's like, you did it. You When you gave him the numbing shot to fix the cut in his head, you gave well, him something. The, the key piece of information was when she pulled up Ronald Galt's record... It showed last accessed by Emma Reston from Emma Reston's regular office, yeah. which means she looked up Ronald Galt's re- medical record before she showed up at the crime scene. Right. So she would have known about his heart issues. Yep. Yeah. And so she used them to her advantage and Natalie knows it. And Natalie is like, uh, I'm sorry. What? And Reston's like, he did a bad thing. He was a bad dude. He was going to get away with it. And we all know it. Right. And so Natalie says, you've done this before, haven't you? And she's like, mm, yeah. But uh, yeah. And she has a, a story, a tragic backstory about it. You know, she was assaulted as a child and that individual got out of jail and assaulted her again. And so she put herself into a position where she could keep those types of people from being able to repeat offend anymore. And it just so happened that while she was medical examiner, this same guy came up again. Yep. And she took Took care care of of it. Yep. She took care of business. Because he got let out again. And this is Natalie's moment of reckoning because Natalie believed this guy should be dead. This guy is dead. She got what she wanted. But she also believes in due process. In due process. Because that's the title of the episode. And in the end, Nick arrives just in time to arrest Reston. Because Natalie's like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm not on your side. I, I, I'm going to turn you in for this. And But I'm really sorry because I kind of understand where you were coming from, but I don't agree with your methods. And Emma is like, fine, I'm not sorry. I'm never going to be sorry. Nat? You Okay. She killed Galt. She drugged him, induced his heart failure. Doctor. Dr. Reston, I am so sorry. I'm not. I never will be. He's never going to hurt anybody again. Yep. I feel better about myself. 
And then we go back, and this time, for some reason, Natalie and Nick are not in our wrap-up. We're back at the precinct, we're getting our wrap-up, but it's Skanky and Cohen. Hmm. And Skanky is blustering a little bit. Um, You know, he's like, oh yeah, he deserved it. And then he's like, actually, no, I say that kind of stuff, but I just, I keep thinking about the family. You know, Skanky's a dad. if we had responded more quickly, do you think we could have saved him? Well, he's really more like... I just feel for the family, like they're not going to get justice. They're not going to see him go through a trial. They're mm-hmm. not going to, um, you know. The, they're the, not going to get all the closure they Yeah, could what have. kind of closure does this leave them with? Because Skanky is a dad. Skanky understands, you know, he could he can very well empathize with the people that have lost someone like this, have lost a child like this. And he's like, how do you go on? And Cohen's like, because you just do, because you have to, because what choice do you have? You have to figure out how to go on. And is every, anything ever going to be good again? Or is anything ever going to be the same again? I don't know. But you have to keep going. You have to figure that out. And the only way to find that out is just to keep moving forward. And then we cut to Nick and Natalie. Because Nick has actually taken Natalie to the grave. That's where they are. But for some reason, he didn't get out of the car. He's just let her go to the grave by herself. And when she comes back, they kind of have a moment where they just he offers her comfort. Physical comfort of like a hug. Of just like a moment of physical closeness of like, sorry, you know, you lost a, f- I know she was meant something to you. And I understand what it means to lose people. I lose people all the time and it never gets easier. Like every 50 years. Yeah. So in terms of just like overall heaviness, way heavier than the cult episode, right? You but can about joke- a tenth as heavy as in the flesh. Oh, well, yeah, In the Flesh kind of puts things in perspective. You know, that's funny because I was thinking um, it's harder for me to make light of this episode because we just did like nine episodes of real heavy shit. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be I want to be in my 90s like vibing. We're having a funny time talking about this great but campy vampire procedural drama from the 1990s but some part of me is still like social justice (laughs) make this matter and you know kind of because we all should be like why june just because june is over gay people don't stop existing problems in our world don't stop existing places that should be inclusive are not and and are not don't stop existing and the fight is still there. We don't get to lay our weapons down until next June. We don't get to shut the door, take down the pride flag, put up the American flag for July 4th, and stop being allies for 11 months. Right. Right. And so maybe I just need time to switch back into the levity of this. A short-term diet, fad diet is not the solution. It's total lifestyle change. Yeah, it's complete and total dedication to change. And I think that's where my mind is still. And I'm trying to be like, this is funny. This part's funny. But at the same time, I'm like, this is kind of sad. They're saying something pretty heavy. The idea that um, where does justice lie? Do we have the right as citizens to remove a threat to the population And who gets to decide who is a threat? Or even members of law enforcement who know 100% sure that somebody did something, but a lawyer gets them off on a technicality? Yeah. Do they have an obligation to 
do something else about it. Yeah, it was really a question of whose obligation is what in this situation. Is the lawyer obligated to to defend him to the full extent of what she can? Are the police obligated to protect him? Are the police obligated to abide by letting him go, knowing he is guilty, but that they don't have evidence? And how do you structure the law enforcement legislation so that other police officers don't abuse the privileges that they have? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And we're asking it in like a very 90s way, but we are asking it. And you got to give the show credit for that. The audacity. The audacity. The, the sincere audacity of like, let's ask questions about what is right and what is not right in a situation like this. Because we and don't... And not give a definitive, definitive answer because yeah. we just want the viewer to think about this. Right. We have posed a question for you and we have, we have wrapped up this particular case. But that doesn't mean that the way this played out is the way they all play out. And where do you fall on other ones? Like there isn't always a Emma Reston who comes in and takes the guy out. Sometimes the guy gets out and they go on to reoffend. And what, what does that mean? What does that mean for our responsibility? Whose fault is it? Ultimately, it's their fault, obviously. But is there anyone else who is culpable in this because they got them out? If a defense attorney gets somebody out on a technicality, even when they know for sure, slam dunk, this guy is guilty or woman is guilty and they go on to commit a crime, who feels guilt for that at night? Who does who can't sleep at night because they had a part in that? I don't know. I think the most curious part of this entire episode was that Nick did not weigh in at all. He, he abstained. Not, he did not talk about what his past experience meant to him. He in no way analyzed how he felt about this situation in light of the past. And usually he just remembered stuff. He discusses that with Natalie. Yeah. But Natalie wasn't emotionally available for him. Right. And so he's remembering this thing that happened, this moment of weakness where he lashed out at people and for he being compromised wrong, his ideals. And he compromised his ideals. And but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about how he felt about it at the end. We don't talk about like, well, I was pissed Lacroix had a part in it because he's really only mad that Lacroix was the one who did the murder and spread the rumor. He's not over. He's like, yeah, I killed those guys. They deserved it. He hasn't it, but finished developing into the person that he would be when he was like, oh, yeah, this uh, Jack the Ripper guy. Peace. I'm out. I'm not going to yeah. take care of it. But we don't know. We don't know if he felt guilty about that. We don't know if he's remembering it as like, a, oh, yeah, that happened to me one time, just as like a neutral memory that he has of this time that he carried out his own justice in a time when it would not have been completely unreasonable for people to carry out their own justice. Right. When the yeah, it's the not law like he got lynched. system wasn't a pervasive structure through the entire American society. Yeah, it's not like he got lynched in the 1950s or something. He got lynched in like colonial era when you were pretty much responsible for your own justice anyway so maybe he was remembering it because at the time it was okay or mostly okay or i don't know it's weird because we don't get any kind of an analysis of it we just see it and so it's really left up to the viewer how you feel about it but i'm gonna leave that there we're not gonna come to any conclusions either we're just gonna let the listener think about it it's good to be well, back on, oh well final no. note on that okay all right, go for it. 
there's a good line I've heard is that the the purpose of the criminal justice system is to absolve the individual of the obligation of vengeance. Yeah. So when a crime is committed against you before before the whole legal system that we have now that a lot of western countries have now. Yeah. Um if a crime was committed against you, you basically had to go round up your friends and or your friends would have to round themselves up and yeah. get vengeance for the crime that was committed against you. But as society has uh, developed, become more sophisticated, specialized, whatever, when a crime is committed against you, you submit that crime to the system and the hope, the intention is that the system can carry out the justice for you in a humane way. Yeah. And you can... Ab absolve yourself of that obligation to avenge yourself and you can pass it off and it doesn't happen all the time right now but eventually the hope is you can trust the system yeah to carry out justice for you so then you don't have to burden yourself with it, it frees the individual of um, all that personal responsibility and yeah. time and effort spent that would have been spent to um, resolve. Yeah, that. secret. But and then it also absolves you of the like, what if you get it wrong? Yes. And what happens if someone uses that as a way to get rid of someone out of retribution, rather out of justice? Exactly. Um. It really it it. It depersonalizes the guilt, not guilt process. It makes it more clinical, more are they innocent, are they guilty? Well, I don't know. You don't get to decide that alone. It Someone, makes it a, a much more rational process. Right. That's the hope. That's the hope. And I think that's what we're talking about really here is like, all right, well, how far do we let rationality right. carry so us? The how far do we obey the law? process the emotional yeah. fallout of the event. Right. And the system can take care of. Yeah, I mean, it has its justice. place. I, I think yeah. you know we, as a society right now, are in a place where we are questioning the way that law enforcement happens. We are questioning the way that law enforcement officers are trained. We are questioned. We question the culture surrounding law enforcement and sort of the infallibility that they have um, been granted. They've been given a blank check. Um, for our trust and do they deserve it? Are they allowed to cash that? Where are we with that? Right. And to a certain point, they get the benefit of the doubt. Right. But if they're abusing the benefit of the doubt all the time, yeah. then and I think there may be some problems. Yeah, and I think as a culture, we're questioning how often do they. I think we're seeing things that are happening and we're no longer like, okay, that's okay. You know, you can walk past the shoe on the ground a hundred times and then eventually you're going to realize that's a mess and you need to pick it up and it doesn't change the fact that that shoe was a mess the entire time but your perception has changed and now you are re you are responsible for cleaning that up because you've noticed it how can you ignore it now how can you forget that that mess is there 
and we can't be put at fault for not having seen that shoe until this very moment. But now that we've seen it, our obligation is to do something or it will be our fault for leaving that shoe there. And that's our, my ab abstract way of saying, um, I think that there is a lot in this culture that we can do to change the perception of law enforcement, to change the way that we respond to like a mental health crisis. Someone with a gun doesn't need to respond to a mental health crisis unless there is actual violence involved. A child with autism who is lost, who cannot find their way home, who happens to be a person of color, does not need to have an armed police officer respond. They need to have a trained professional who knows how to deal with per people in that situation respond. And I think this is something we're talking about, and I'm, I'm here for it, and I think we need to not ignore this conversation, even though it's difficult. And I think it ends up being difficult because we all know we've seen the shoe on the ground and we didn't talk about it before. And so you feel like if you talk about it now, you're saying that every single time you walked by that shoe, you were culpable. You were, you were wrong for it. Well, no. No. Our perception wasn't there. We didn't see it. But now that we see it, we can't ignore it. Does right. that make sense? Yep. So I'm just going to leave it there for us for tonight. Um, think about that. And remember that sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love and pick up the shoes when you find them. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.